The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Theory I'm on? Yes, I am. Okay. So, good morning. Uh, Welcome again to North Pine. It's glad to share and fellowship with you this morning. Uh, This morning, as you can see from the slide up there, we're going to be looking at uh, another part of our series on the message of Christmas, and this time it's the message of the Magi. Uh, And that's an account, uh, a story that's only found in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, And it's one of those ones we're pretty familiar with, is it not? It's one of those ones we, we kind of think we know pretty well. But it's possible, maybe even probable, that what we think we know is really a mix of what Matthew actually says or writes and some of the traditions that have grown up around that particular story. I mean, there's this one, for example. It's obviously one of the traditions that goes on around this particular story. But there's also this one in the very slide we have used to, um, to introduce this particular topic. You'll see this slide has been used a few weeks in a row and it's full of errors. You'll see, first of all, that we have what appears to be Mary and Joseph in a sort of a, a lean-to, a shed of some kind or something, some open-plan um, stable with a manger and then three guys on camels heading towards them. The reality is that Mary probably gave birth in what was something, probably resembles something more of a cave, and that the manger itself may not have been made of timber, but, but rather of stone. Um, we have no idea how many magi there were. Three is based on the number of gifts that they gave. Some think that there might have been as many as 12. There might have been an entourage. And you'd have to think, I guess, if a bunch of guys who are rather well attired and carrying expensive stuff were walking many, many kilometres from one side of the country to another, you know, from the east to the west, that they probably had a few sort of other folks hanging around to help secure their load, you know, to help them do the lifting and carrying as well. So who knows how many there really were. The story doesn't tell us that. It just tells us there were three gifts. We don't know where they rode camels. They may have. But I wonder whether they needed a wagon to carry the stuff or to carry all the stuff they will have needed to camp out each night for the length of time that they had to travel. And again, we don't know how long they took to travel. None of that stuff's in the story. And they certainly didn't turn up at the birth of Jesus. By the time they turned up, uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were probably living in a house. Jesus may have been as old as two. You might recall that Herod, when he ordered the slaughter of the infants of Bethlehem, ordered that all those up to the age of two should be killed. All those boys up to the age of two should be killed. By that time, of course, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus had gone. So there's a whole lot of stuff that we think we know and we might just sort of, it's not just roll the tongue, but many of us here will realise it's just not quite right. And some of those nativity scenes we see, 
uh, often will have, the shepherds and all that sort of stuff, and the three wise men as well, all at the same place at the same time. Not true. We don't find that in the Bible at all. So what do we find in the Bible? Well, we'll have a look at that in a moment, but I'm going to pray first. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we do just want to uh, give you thanks that we can gather together in your name, and we thank you too for this account in, um, in the book of Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, and we do pray that you might help us to uh, just take on board the, the message of the Magi, that we might learn something about the way you operate and the impact it has upon us, and that we might be able to, to mull over that, to think about it, to reflect upon it, and to be grateful for it. And this we pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. When we think about the, the message of the Magi, or the Magi, often don't know which way to pronounce it because usually in Greek it's a different G, so, you know, Magioi, that's anyway, not to worry. And I think of, and whenever I do say it, I think of my stint as the maker of two-minute noodles. That's another thing altogether, but I'll try to say Magi. It seems to be the more accepted English pronunciation. But when we think about this, this story of the Magi, we think about it often in the message itself. We often think, what's it all about? What's the message of the Magi? Well, the main message, I guess, is that Jesus is the king, which is kind of code for saying he's the Messiah, the sent one. So I thought that's a bit obvious. We all know that. We've read the story. Maybe there's something more. So let's read the story and see if there is something more. So you can follow on the screen or in your Bibles. This is from Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I want to just give our attention to a little bit in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And the Magi came from the east. Where exactly remains uncertain. It might have been from Persia. It might have been from Babylon. It might have been from the Arabian Peninsula. Scholars are divided. The reality is we can't be absolutely sure. But 
Matthew, who would have known, didn't say. So what's going on here? Why wasn't he more specific? And I think he was as specific as he wanted to be, that he was giving his initial readers a message that they would really understand. And it's bound up in the words from the East. Now, we may be aware that it seemed pretty likely that Matthew's gospel was uh, written for Jewish believers, as Jews who become Christians. His gospel has more references that relate to Jesus from the Old Testament than any other gospel, about 130. He calls what the other gospels call the kingdom of God, he calls that the kingdom of heaven out of deference to the sensibilities of Jews to the divine name. And there's a whole array of other reasons why it's generally accepted that Matthew's gospel was primarily, at least firstly, written for Jewish converts. Such people will have understood something more or seen layers in the idea of a people coming from the east. So what might he have expected his audience to know? What might he expected them to think of when they read those words from the east? Well, when God condemned Cain to be a fugitive and wanderer after he had murdered his brother Abel, he went east of Eden. You'll see in uh, Genesis chapter 4, it says, Behold, you have driven me, this is uh, Cain speaking, you have driven me away from the ground. From your face, face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be on taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which means wanderer, east of Eden. We might then suggest that one of the first things the original readers might have thought of is the fact that east is, is associated with being away from the presence of of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden, which is the place of God, the paradise. In Genesis 25, as the story of Abraham's life draws to a close, we're told that after Abraham's wife Sarah had died, he remarried, married a woman called Keturah. And then he went on and fathered another six sons. So here's a guy who struggled to have a child, now fathering another six sons. But note the fate of these other children. Genesis 25. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac as the covenant bearer. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastwards to the east country. So all those who might perhaps challenge Isaac's inheritance set off to the east. They were not part of the covenanted people. They were other than. And it's interesting that uh, among those uh, sons, one of them, of course, was, was in fact Midian. And Midian is the father of the Midianites, who became enemies of Israel. Where are they from? The east. So we find this 
referenced in Judges chapter 6. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them unto the hand of of, uh, Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So they went into hiding. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came up against them. So you see what's going on here, what the east is associated with. Those away from the presence of God and those who are enemies of the covenant people of God. We find too that the Assyrians, the empire that conquered and exiled the northern kingdom, that is Israel, in 722 BC, came from the east. And the Babylonians, who conquered the southern kingdom, Judah, in 586 BC, came from, guess what, the east. In the Old Testament, it's evident those who dwell in the east are understood to be away from the presence of the Lord, and is from the east that the enemies of God or God's people, come. And I'm sure the the import and the impact, the startling fact uh, that the Magi came from the east in order to worship the king of the Jews, to pay him homage, to give him costly gifts, would not be lost on Matthew's original readers. See, Matthew brings to his readers' attention that something unexpected and new had happened. This account highlights that God had, or what God really meant when he established his covenant with Abraham. What God had intended when he declared to Abraham that he knew all the families, that's all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The east had come to worship the king of the Jews, the Messiah. Those who were once enemies of God and his people, those who were once away from the presence of the Lord are invited, that's us, to come into the presence of the Lord and be numbered among his people. I think Ephesians 2 sums it up beautifully. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, remember the the Magi were Gentiles. They were not Jews. They'd come from the east. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by uh, by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We read also in, um, in Romans uh, 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So, what's the message of the Magi? I think it's this, to start with. Those who are once far off have been brought near. And those who are once enemies have been reconciled to God. So as we read this story, maybe we can think of that. Not only is Jesus the King, the Messiah, but we're drawn to him by the power of God, by the very Holy Spirit who is given to us. We who were once far off 
have been brought near. That's what we hear this morning. We who are once enemies of God are reconciled to God. That's what we hear this morning. And that's why we can share together uh, in fellowship because we're now part of that very kingdom. So keep that in mind. That's part A, part B of the first message number one. Those who were far off have been brought near. Those who were once enemies have been reconciled. A second message. I'm only going to do two. So don't worry because I know it's Christmas Eve and people just want to uh, sort of maybe listen politely and then head off home. Um, I want to move on from the who, right? Those who, those who, the who to the what. And in considering the what, we'll continue to, I think, behold the, the unwarranted and almost indescribable kindness of God to all who come to number themselves among the citizens of the kingdom of God. I want to consider what God uses to lead people to himself. When God draws people to himself, he is astoundingly gracious. For most, if not all of us, our our journey to faith in the Lord uh, Jesus as our Lord and Saviour didn't really follow a, a straight path. I think probably true for most of us. In fact, though, as well, it will have been different for each of us. It's not the same route that is taken. God, in his kindness, deigns to meet us where we're at, to use our life experiences, both the good and the bad, our socio-cultural context, our education, our personalities, our curiosities, our deepest longings, and so on, as the means to draw us to himself. He encounters with, encounters or engages with us where we are at. If this were not the case, we would remain, as uh, Ephesians 2, 1 reminds us, dead in our trespasses and sins. I'll just use a, a couple of examples just to, to illustrate what I'm trying to get at. Rahab. Look, most of us have heard the, the story of Rahab. You remember she's the one who hid Israelite spies when they were sent to look over the land in preparation for the um, Israelite entry into Canaan and the siege and destruction of the city of Jerusalem. So what did God use to bring her and her family into the Israelite community? This is kind of a highlights package. He used fear. She knew of the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the conquest of the Amorite kings, you know, Og and Sion. She knew all that. And so she was afraid the Israelites were going to come and do that to Jericho. Of course, she was right. She used, well, God used her awe as an A-W-E. All this convinced her as, uh, that, uh, you know, she said to the spies, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. He used her pagan belief, which I find fascinating. In her culture, it was generally understood that when one people conquered another people, it's a sure sign that the winner's God was more powerful than the loser's God. And so it would be reasonable to suggest that Rahab was acting in a manner completely consistent with her religious beliefs in shifting her allegiance from the gods of Canaan to the God of Israel. This is what people did. Love of family. Rahab bargained with the spies in the hope of saving her family. She said, in effect, I showed you kindness. How about you save my life and the lives of my family members? And, of course, they agreed. What's the end result of all that? All that stuff that has... Yeah, from a person who has no real connection with Israel, in fact, afraid of an invading army, who has pagan beliefs, God uses all that 
in order to bring her into the community of the family of God, into the people amongst the people of Israel. What's the end result? But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. Because she hid the messengers uh, whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So those are the kinds of things that God used to bring her into the people of God. And so she could number herself amongst the community of God's people. And of course we're thinking of the Magi, or the Magi. As far as we know, they will have had no prior commitment to the God of the Jews. They were most likely high-ranking teachers of another religion, possibly Zoroastrianism, a Persian religion. Monotheistic, but quite different. We don't know some of those things, but it seems extraordinarily unlikely that they will have had any other knowledge, any knowledge of Israel as a people, certainly no connection. They might have read their sacred books, however. They were very learned men. They may have come across uh, Jewish communities. If they were from Babylon, they almost certainly would have. But they were not part of that. They, weren't, they had no prior commitment to the God of the Jews. They were astrologers. They believed that the stars exercised some control over the activities of the earth and those who lived upon it, and that the stars could contain direction and messages for people on the earth, and signs and messages that, had been, that they had been trained to interpret. You not find it startling and in a way enormously encouraging that God used this belief in astrology to direct them to Bethlehem to the one born king of the Jews. He met them where they're at and he used the things they believed. They saw the star when it rose and then they interpreted what they saw as something to signal another thing that for them was utterly momentous. So much so that they picked up their bags and started a journey. Um, And then God uh, gave them the capacity to see this star again. It appeared again and directed them to Bethlehem. See, God engaged with them where they were at. He spoke to them and directed them through what they believed. Now, we would sit around here and say, there's no such astrology, it's a nonsense. But God used it to direct these people to himself, to the one who was born king of the Jews. What's the end result? Well, they travelled, they bore gifts, they paid homage, they worshipped the king of the Jews. Incredible thing. And we don't know what else happened to them, but that, that we do know. Um, Mark mentioned um, Ayan Hirsi Ali, I think a couple of weeks back, speaking of her conversion. And uh, you know, she's written an article about that. I just thought I'd use a modern example just to show, uh, again, this kind of a thing I'm trying to think through. Um, Hersey Ali had written, recently written an article for an online public affairs news journal called Unheard. It was titled, Why I Am Now a Christian. The faith journey has taken her from Islam, and for a time she was quite a radical Muslim in her youth, to atheism, where she mingled with the likes of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, and now to Christianity. Uh, A fellow by the name of Michael Cook uh, has summarised her background this way. He said, she was born in Somalia, 1969, raised a Muslim in Kenya, 
In high school, she joined the Muslim Brotherhood and found meaning in its fierce interpretation of Islam. She left Islam behind when her family migrated to Europe. She moved to the Netherlands, learned Dutch, and was eventually, uh, eventually became a member of the Dutch parliament. After 9-11, she became an atheist. So she was so horrified by what had happened then. And she criticised the treatment of women in Muslim societies. She wrote a short, or wrote a script for a short film on the topic, but the director, and some of you will remember this, Theo von Gogh, uh, was savagely assassinated by a Muslim fanatic. Her own life was at risk, and she eventually moved to the United States, where she built a career as a critic of Islam and woke culture, and as a champion of free speech. So we see here, initially, she rejected Islam and then turned to atheism. But now she calls herself a Christian. What's going on? Well, what did God use? Well, he used her political values. Percy Ali is deeply concerned that Western civilization is under serious threat from, uh, from the resurgence of great power authoritarianism and expansionism in the forms of the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's Russia. She's concerned about the rise of global Islamism and she's concerned about the spread of woke ideology. God used her intellectual considerations. She has become convinced that neither Islam nor atheism has any answers and that Christianity is the only bulwark of defence against those threats. For it is in the Judeo-Christian tradition, she says, that the values and institutions we value most in the West find their origin. She's especially concerned to preserve freedom of conscience and freedom of speech. She says, to me, this freedom of conscience and speech is perhaps the greatest benefit of Western civilization. It does not come naturally to man. It is the product of centuries of debate within Jewish and Christian communities. God also used her search for meaning and purpose. She says, I have also turned to Christianity because I've I, because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable. Indeed, very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? Well, what's the end result? And I quite like this. She says in her article, of course I still have a great deal to learn about Christianity. Isn't that wonderfully honest for a, a woman of her, her profound intelligence? I discover a little more at church each Sunday. Isn't that an incredible thing? I discover a little more at church each Sunday. But I've recognised in my own long journey through a wilderness of fear and self-doubt that there is a better way to manage the challenges of existence than either Islam or unbelief had to offer. Let's be clear, says Isaac Woolor. Just make sure. Yes, let's be let's be clear. This is uh, Isaac Wilhelm, associated with the uh, Gospel Coalition, and he's writing about her. And he says, "I'm not here to nitpick conversion stories. There's one thing I've come to understand from talking with fellow Christians: is that God uses all types of backgrounds, experiences, and gifts as catalysts to usher people into the light of His truth." If the desire to save Western civilization leads uh, someone into the arms of Jesus, praise God. Praise God. So, what of us? What of us? What did God use 
to lead you? What has God used to lead me to trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross and to submit to his lordship, the lordship of the risen saviour? For me, just a couple of things I'll mention, and I won't go into detail because we won't, uh, don't really have the time, but for me it was a death, the death of my mother when I was 15. For me it was a desire in my mid-teens to discover the truth, you know, that teenage thing you kind of go through and, and the kind of reading I was doing at the time. And I didn't even understand what all that meant. For me, it was the witness of Christian neighbours, particularly after the death of my mother. For me, it was cynically reading the Bible. I found one at home, King James Version, the only one we had. We weren't really a bookish family. And so I went through and started reading the Bible from cover to cover, underlining all the dumb bits. That's what I did. I literally did that. For me, it was the work of the Spirit of God shifting my beliefs from atheism to deism to theism to Christianity, to faith in the Lord Jesus. What is it for you? Janine spoke uh, earlier about having a continuing chat, perhaps after over morning tea. Maybe you could tell others what God used to bring you to himself. What's your highlights package? finish off with this. Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And the end result, verse 6, and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What's the message of the Magi? That those who are once far off have been brought near. That's us. That those who are once enemies have been reconciled to God. That's us. And that God uses all types of backgrounds and experiences and gifts as catalysts to usher people into the light of his truth. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you that you are a gracious God, that you have brought us to yourself, that you have met us where we're at in our error, in our confusion, in our uh, assumptions and presuppositions, that you have used those things and changed those things. You've redeemed those things, those aspects of us and our experience to draw us to yourself so that we might number ourselves amongst the people of God, that we might truly call ourselves children of the living God. And for this, we give you thanks and praise. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.